hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and I hope you're sitting comfortably. Because, as promised, the final few episodes of this year are going to be a little different. A little more random. Basically, a little easier for me to produce whilst having a supposed break. But of course, they still need to be enlightening and inspiring and engaging because I'm a little man with a fragile ego and I'm desperate to keep your attention. (laughs) Thankfully, I've got a whole roster of content stored from the subscriber Patreon channel, including this huge sprawling trip through the entire history of gothic and horror. It's a trip I took a while back with Professor Roger Luckhurst. Prof. Rog is one of the world's foremost experts in gothic and horror, and genre in general. Amongst many things, he's written books on science fiction, zombies, The Shining, Egyptian mummies, the fiction of J.G. Ballard, and an entire book on the topic of corridors. But his real love is for creepy tales of vampires and old castles and all things, well, gothic. I know Rog from my old postgraduate days, and I can tell you there are few academics better at making old books seem interesting, or turning a dry topic into an excuse for beautifully barbed humour. So when he brought out a new book, simply titled Gothic, an illustrated history, late last year, I jumped at the chance to get him on the Patreon to talk about it at length. As it turned out, it became a three-part series all of which I've gathered together here as one single two-hour recording. It's one of my seasonal gifts to you. We cover everything from the birth of the genre back in the 18th century through Shelley and Poe and Stoker and Lovecraft and Jackson, all the way to the splintered genre of our present day. Yeah, it's a trip. Now, I won't be doing this often, because the patrons pay good money for this bonus content and to support the show. And I don't ever want you guys to feel shortchanged. I hope that you'll forgive this one instance, because one, it's good to show people what happens in our little hidden sanctum. And two, I'm just so tired. (laughs) If you do like what you hear and you want to join Talking Scared Patreon, you just go to patreon.com slash talking scared pod or use the link in the show notes but otherwise come with me to a bookline study somewhere in the ivory towers of the academy put your bag down take a seat class is in session let's talk scared well hi roger and thanks for joining me on talking scared It's totally delightful to be here, Neil. Thank you so much for the invitation. No, this is going to be a good one. I think my patron list is going to like this one. Um, We're basically going to trace the development of gothic and horror. Well, I say that 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 is already a bold claim, Um, but we're going to have a go at tracing it all the way from its roots in the 18th century up to the present day. Just a minor task then. (laughs) Well, We'll, we'll aim to keep this as light touch and as sprightly as possible. And we we, we can aim for a co- coherent progression through the ages. But anyone who listens to this show will know that conversations soon tend to spiral off into random directions. The one thing we have in our arsenal is that you've got this new book, Gothic and Illustrated History, which is out on October 28th, I believe. That's right. Well, I've read it cover to cover over the weekend and massively enjoyed it because as everyone knows by now because I never actually 
ever stop talking about it. I spent years researching and teaching the Gothic, but it's been the best part of a decade. And when you're not keeping your, your kind of foot in the door, things slip out of your head. So this book was actually a fantastic way to reorientate myself with the whole field. Um, and it will be a great way to introduce people to the genre if they don't know all the ins and outs. That's really great news because um, that's what we were aiming for. I mean, it's uh, Thames and Hudson, so it's a gloriously illustrated book. And in many ways, they uh, were always reminding me that the images were much more important than anything I had to say. And I kind of, having seen the final book, I kind of agree with them. It's um, it's it's a brilliant kind of design. I'm really really pleased with it. Uh, and they gave me this kind of instruction to say, "Can you do all of the Gothic, everything uh, across the world in?" only 52,000 words. Um, so I handed in, I think, something like 80 and said, obviously, it needs editing. And they just kind of snipped it for me. It was it was amazing, because I think that would have been a very difficult task to cut it down. But they could just see the essence of it as well. So, uh, so it's really a joint effort with all of my editors and, and people, picture designers, everyone at Thames and Hudson has just been great. As you say, the pictures are more than half the story. I mean, I, normally, when I read a book like this, I, I quickly get tired and I want to read more and I want to know more and I find the pictures interruptive. But in, in this case, the images really do tell a whole parallel story to, to what you're writing about. So, yeah, but this is our companion conversation to go alongside it. And, and we're going to, as I say, talk about what Gothic is, what horror is, how the two meet, how they've changed, where they've gone, all of these things. To start with, though, I think we need to kind of let the audience know why you are the person who's doing this with me. So can you introduce <laughs> yourself and your credentials and who you are and what you are and what you do? <laughs> okay, uh, well, I'm now, uh, I've now got a really pretentious title. I'm now <laughs> the um, Jeffrey Tillotson Chair of 19th Century Studies at uh, Birkbeck College. So um, I've been teaching Gothic there for 27 years now, a long time. Uh, and in that time, I guess I've done uh, a couple of histories of of um, science fiction as well as gothic um, but I've edited uh, Jekyll and Hyde for Oxford I've done Lovecraft's horror stories I did a Dracula edition um, and uh, a book on essays on uh, Dracula and I've even coming out this Halloween got a jigsaw uh, which is the world of Dracula coming out with uh, Hachette uh, which is a thousand-piece image of um, of Dracula's castle. It's all rather marvellous. So, yeah, lots of different things that I do. Amazing. I mean, I was going to talk about transmedia and, and cross-media stuff, but I hadn't considered jigsaws. Gothic jigsaws. It's, it's the future. Yeah, someone <laughs> will write a PhD on that. Um, you and I have actually met once at the International Gothic Association Conference uh, in 2013. That's right. You gave a keynote speech called The Undead, The Great Technological Expansion. And and by contrast, I was in another room too hungover to live, presenting a paper on Slenderman. Such was my life back then. Uh, okay, that was unfortunate. <laughs> right. It's really unfortunate because I would have liked to have um, heard a paper on Slenderman because that's it's just such a fascinating story. It is. I was not the person to deliver it. I, I quite famously at that conference had to leave the lectern to go and be sick and came back. <laughs> That's perfectly gothic. Yeah. I admire your professionalism for coming back, though. That, that's really good. I, th I think I would have kept running. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Various academic people that you and I both know led me astray. People who should have known better. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, we've, we've kind of stated who we are. I think we can together take a fair stab at guiding people through the history of all things horrible. Um, it's a sort of torturous, sprawling, labyrinthine thing, though, with as many interpretations as there are people to have them. So I think it'll be fun to see where we disagree as much as, as anything. Yeah. Um, let's start with a key question before we get into the actual books and the history of this stuff. Can we try and come up in a few seconds whatever, with a pithy differentiation between gothic and horror? Do you have a stock answer for that ready to go? <laughs> yeah, I kind of do, I think. I mean, I, I always say that, um, to, to really simplify it, um, the gothic starts in the middle of the 18th century uh, with uh, people hanging around in graveyards and writing poetry about it in a, in a really obsessively morbid way. Uh, and then uh, Horace Walpole writes The Castle of Otranto in 1764, and then in the second edition, he subtitles it A Gothic Story. Uh, and then in the 1790s, Anne Radcliffe comes along and produces this amazing bestseller, The Mysteries of Adolfo, and in a way, the craze for uh, that kind of novel emerges. At that time, it wasn't called the Gothic, so it's always a retrospective kind of thing. But um, it's definitely a 19th century term, and it covers quite a lot of 19th century uh, fictions as well. And my really basic distinction is that the Gothic, I think, is a, has a like a theological frame, uh, and it also has a frame uh, about Britain or England's relationship to Europe as well. So we always tend to think of the classic kind of Gothic novel as basically um, really nasty goings on in uh, Italian, sometimes Spanish, often French convents with all these evil, nasty European Catholics doing gruesome things to each other and menacing our lovely Protestant women. Uh, and that's the kind of overarching theological frame. My sense of horror is that um, it's definitely post-Darwin. It's it's more secular. I'm not saying you can't have horror about religious issues. You can, clearly. Um, but in this case, I think post-Darwinian, much more about the body, about the horrors of biology, the, the horrors of, of what lurks uh, inside us. And um, there are some really good clinching um, people that you can kind of point to. So I often teach from the 1890s Arthur Macken's book, The Three Imposters, which um, has a really gruesome image in it of a corpse found um, burning from the inside out. And it's all about biology and horror and, and, um, and nasty, squidgy things, the stories in there. So there's that. And then there's also obviously Lovecraft in the 20th century, uh, which is about squidgy things. And he's profoundly atheistic in his beliefs. So this is not about theology anymore. So that that's one of the divides that I make. And obviously, we can have huge arguments about whether that works or not, because these are very fuzzy terms. And it always pays, I think, to be slightly relaxed about the difference. But that's how I go with it. Well, that's a far more interesting answer than mine, because that you've done it as both kind of theme and as era there, which is is interesting, because mm -hmm. normally it's either or. For me, I've always just thought of Gothic as a... Hmm, how do I put this? I've always thought of them as, di as, as terms that mean different parts of the reading process. So I think I think of Gothic as kind of like the wider architecture of the story. Okay. Um, in terms of it has to have certain components to it. You know, it's, it's about certain things. Yeah. 
And I think of horror as the, in, ter in more terms of like affect theory, in terms of the, the impact that something, including the Gothic, can have on you, if that makes sense. Yeah. So for me, all Gothic is horror and not all horror is Gothic. Um, whilst I completely agree, and I can't really quibble with the way you put it, the only, there is one one moment in a text that kind of explodes your temporal theory for me, and that's the part in Matthew Lewis's The Monk from eight, uh, mm -hmm. 1796 when an, an abbess, an evil uh, nun, Mother Superior, is stamped to death by a crowd until she is quoted as resembling nothing more than a puddle. <laughs> that's right yeah and that kind of outdoes anything Bretty Snellis can do in, in 1992 with American Psycho it, it so yeah sure and there are some great kind of physiological mouldering bodies in um in The Monk as well yeah. so you know waking up in in a tomb with this kind of you know decaying corpse next to you so yeah so I think I think that's um that that's a good good argument you can get into really boring technical arguments between terror versus horror as well yeah um and Radcliffe famously did this distinction between terror and horror which doesn't brilliantly hold up even in her own essay actually um but that's um the monk and Matthew Lewis was typically regarded as a terror novel or a terroristic novel in the 1790s, you know, so shocking, so transgressive that it almost, you know, stopped Anne Radcliffe from writing anything much else because she thought, what have I produced, you know, from my, yeah. from, from my imagination? Somebody has completely taken this over and, and inverted everything that I wanted it to do, you know, to, to, to protect sensibility, to protect the Protestant faith, to, to be uh, a message about um, be temperate, be considerate. Uh, and then you get someone like Matthew Lewis who's using it to transgress all of those ethics. So it really kind of threw her into into a fit, um, as it did with other people too. Samuel Taylor Coleridge famously denounced it as well. So I think, I mean, that is, in a sense, you can see that horror is curled inside the Gothic at all points. Um, but really, I think someone like Lewis is going for definitely for that stronger sensibility, a stronger sensation than it was initially thought of in the 1720s or 30s or 40s. You know, those sorts of graveyard poems are not really about mouldering bodies. They're much more about, ah, doesn't time pass? And, you know, don't, don't we live to regret things? And Otranto is, is, is in a kind of comic mode, actually. It's a sort of a great joke uh, and not and quite light, uh, rather than being you know all about bodily disintegration. So I think that comes in increasingly. And it depends where you want to see it first starting, I suppose. Well, well, let's let's dwell momentarily on Otranto because um, I strongly imagine most of my listeners won't have read it, and it is quite difficult these days to make a case for a layman or someone outside the academy to read it because it, it, it's not frightening. As you say, it worked in a comic <laughs> register that is slightly outmoded. I think it's. I think a transol seems more old-fashioned than Shakespeare when you read it. Um, but what what is it in the simplest terms? I suppose that that novel came to typify for the Gothic. What elements of it are crucial to what came after? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort, sort of agree with you. The only advantage is for um, a tranto is that it's really short. Uh, so they, it's like 120 pages and it's a bit like um, many origin stories, you know, that you go back to the origin. It's quite disappointing. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, I think you need quite a lot of context, as you say, 
to kind of understand why that occurred in 1764 um, and why it occurred in the way it did. So, so inside the novel, if you like, it sets up lots of things. So it, its first edition was uh, presented by Walpole as a discovered manuscript um, and he apologised for its crudity and its superstition because it came from some Italian mouldering uh, palace. And, that you know, obviously this is a, a, a savage, pre-modern, stupid kind of thing. Uh, and uh, he, he nevertheless understood that here we are in the middle of the supposed enlightenment. We're all rational. We've got over our superstitions, but people love indulging them. So, you know, this is a novel that is full of um, strange, disordered dreams. Uh, I mean, it starts with um, a wedding that seems to be going quite well until a giant spectral helmet appears and crushes the bridegroom to death. Uh, I'm sure we've all been to weddings like that. <laughs> um, and, you know, lots and lots of kind of um, tropes, um, portraits that sigh and kind of wander off. Uh, strange labyrinths underneath the house and castle, um, a usurping story about an evil, uh, monstrous duke who has killed off the rightful heir and all those sorts of things. There's lots and lots of elements inside it that you can kind of see. But I think also the tone of it is quite centrally gothic as well, in the sense that I think, you know, that 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 shift between comedy and horror is so fine and we all love if you if you're a genre um fan something like the evil dead which is both horrifying but also incredibly funny and i think that's what walpole sets up as well this kind of comedy element where the sublime kind of tilts into the grotesque all all, all the time and the ridiculous all the time so i think in that sense it's quite a uh, uh, it sets up an awful lot but the other thing that I think is really um, great about it, why it's useful to start, um, and I teach it as the first text on my um, Gothic course to my students as well, is just the story behind it. So, you know, Horace Walpole is um, one of the sons of Robert Walpole, who was the first British prime minister, so-called prime minister. Uh, and um, Robert Walpole had, had built his enormous classical mansion Houghton Hall which you can go and visit in Norfolk it's this amazing symmetrical perfect classical building which represents Greek democracy and perfection and what did his son do Horace he built Strawberry Hill just outside London which is this mad chaotic gothic mansion um, which he spent 55 years of his life kind of adding strange bits onto it's a complete melange of different medieval styles it's totally irrational and it's in that building which you can also go and visit i'd really recommend it but it's in that building that he had the initial dream of um of the castle of otranto which he 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 then kind of wrote out in a in in a kind of slow uh, working through of this nightmare that he'd had. And the, the biographical details are fantastic. So, uh, in 1764, uh, Horace Walpole was a member of parliament because, of course, if your dad uh, was, then you just got a, a, another seat uh, for yourself. Uh, and he was uh, in parliament. But someone inside parliament stood up and used parliamentary privilege and basically accused Horace Walpole of being in one of the best insults I've ever heard, a hermaphroditic horse, um, <laughs> which meant that he had an unhealthy relationship with another man that he was defending in Parliament. 
Now, in other words, he was being accused of being a gay man, but he was being accused in the 18th century of sodomy, which was a death penalty. Mm-hmm. And he promptly was so terrified of this accusation that he abandoned uh, Westminster, abandoned the Parliament and retreated to Strawberry Hill in this state of absolute kind of anxiety and terror. It's no wonder he's having nightmares and, 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 and dreams. And it's out of that anxiety that he produces this really odd, strange uh, gothic story. And it already invites you to interpret it in a kind of um, uh, a really furious way as being actually a really coded um, autobiograph- autobiography or a statement about the position that he's in. And even he might not know what he's doing. He might not be in control of what he's doing. But the story behind the story tells you that the Gothic is going to be this immensely allegorical um, kind of writing. It, it demands your interpretation. Uh, it it asks you always but what is this really about what's it about why are we so anxious at this point in history or that point in history what are they so worried about and that is so productive and fruitful so that's why uh, that's my pitch for reading the castle of otranto i mean to be honest that was more interesting than like the rude in the book in my opinion um <laughs> <laughs> but i mean a few things from that one the whole image of a huge phallic helmet in that novel suddenly takes upon on very different um, kind of resonances. It certainly does. Uh, yeah, but also it's a whole kind of sub-strand of the Gothic is that it's, it's always been haunted by a kind of coded queer panic, hasn't it? All, yeah. all the way through into, you know, certainly in Frankenstein, Jekyll and Hyde, Dracula... Um, all stories about men being pursued by men uh, and also men giving, in various allegorical ways, birth to other men. You know, Victor Frankenstein creates his yeah. monster. Uh, Henry Henry Jekyll creates Mr. Hyde and, and Dracula can create all manner of, of offspring through um, aberrant means. Yeah, that's that, that's right. I mean, that, and th- this is so... I mean, the, the, the really good thing about this is sometimes, you know... Uh, people can say, "Oh God, academics read so much into into this stuff. It's not about that at all, and that's completely crazy." But the but the start of the Gothic um, is definitely has these two uh, central figures, um, both um, Horace Walpole and Beckford, William Beckford. Mm-hmm. They both write really key Gothic novels. Beckford wrote Vathek, uh, but they also built houses. Each built two houses. And they're explicitly men who who desire other men. I mean, in William Beckford's case, it was so notorious that he had to leave the country for at least 20 years because he was otherwise would have been prosecuted for um, sodomitical acts. Uh, so he was well known as what um, he rather brilliantly called a pantapoof uh, in the 18th century, you know, a man who desires other men. So it's not like we're reading anything into things here. Mm-hmm. It's it's right there. You know, it's explicitly there. And then, it, as you say, this kind of queer um, subtext or text follows through many of these things. And vampirism is something that, you know, you can tie up with this. But even kind of, you know, so so-called higher versions of the gothic like henry james ghost stories i mean henry james is someone again who um we don't know what his sexual orientation was 
um, but it was uh, fairly um, uh, occluded. He was obsessively secretive. We don't know anything about his actual physical relationships, either with men or women. And all of his, his ghost stories, in a sense, hover around that anxiety. So it becomes a really um, useful way of, of reading uh, a whole trajectory through the Gothic. It's not something that we're trying to, you know, inject in some kind of um, politically correct way. It's right there in the Gothic, right from the start. Yeah, very much so. And then it comes to the fore, I would say, and it's it, the, the kind of the apotheosis of it would be, I think, the, the, the great Gothic horror tales of the 1890s when, when the issue of the British Empire falling, by the way, falling apart was also a massive anxiety. But we'll get to that. Sure. Before we move yeah. on from Otranto, one thing you mentioned, well, two things you mentioned. One... You mentioned Strawberry Hill, which is Walpole's house. Mm-hmm. Now, I visited it, actually, weirdly, as part of the same conference where I met you. Um, <laughs> and and it is, it, it's marvellous in, in the truest sense of the word. It is a, an architectural marvel because it's fake. And the thing about it is yeah. that I find fascinating about Strawberry Hill is that it really redefines our idea of what history is because... To us now, from our perspective, it's an old house. And you don't Mm. look at it as an old house and ever think of it as a house that when it was built, was built to look like an old house even then. So to make that clearer, Walpole basically wanted to build a house that was a pastiche or parody or idealised version of a kind of courtly, knightly castle. So it's got fake parapets and things like that all along the top. And it's built to be a it's built in the same way that we would build a fake castle or a fake historical building today. And I find it fascinating that we look at it and go, oh, it's an old house, not understanding that there are layers of history. And it it, it really proves to me that we, we think of history as a monolith. We don't think of it as things that has its own layers, that history has history, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good way of putting it. And again, you know, I'd really recommend people go and, and kind of have a look because it's now, it's been restored even mm-hmm. more since the time you might have visited it. Uh, it's constantly being worked on and improved um, in in, in uh, the restoration of it. Yeah, and it's it's supposed to be, so this is um, this tells you something about the Gothic centrally as well, is, is, you know, whilst the 18th century is sort of as the Georgian house, so the perfect symmetry, uh, of your windows in perfect proportion, um, all the same, identical down the street. Um, that's 18th century architecture. That's Georgian uh, architecture. Uh, but the, but but this was a complete reaction to that and to, to classicism. This is bits and pieces of medieval buildings chucked together. He's quoting and borrowing from all kinds of places, Italy, France. Uh, there's a bit of um, King's uh, college chapel from cambridge uh there's you know turrets that are borrowed from uh normandy and you know it's it's a crazy concatenation of things uh but it's it's saying something really quite strong which is why the gothic revival architecture it was so powerful for the next 150 years uh which is that um there's an investment there in in a pre-modern world in the medieval world there's kind of a suggestion and you know this is the world that Horace Walpole is trying to escape from in all kinds of ways um, that the medieval organic growth this asymmetric kind of 
um, strange growths of, of um, gargoyles and finials and all of these strange things. It's better than the modern world. It's more organic. It's more crucial. So actually in architecture, early Gothic means something quite positive. It's not the location of all of our worst fears and anxieties, which is what the literature tends to do. But in the architecture, it, the values flip. Um, there's a reason you know, why the Houses of Parliament are built uh, in Gothic style. It's not because it's full of terrifying people, although now it is, um, but it's, it's supposed to represent continuity of the centuries. This is the mother of all parliaments, so therefore it must be built embedded in a medieval kind of notion all the way back to you know the magna carta the rights of the rights of the um uh, commoner or the citizen against uh tyrants so there's something really quite crucial in his house as well as in his text to understand the gothic yeah and the other thing it does but by looking back at that that previous era of well of pre-modern history is it introduces this idea that is so crucial to so much of the gothic of of the counterfeit which to yes. elaborate that on elaborate on that slightly is essentially the idea that all nostalgia is for a period that never actually existed we we replicate our ideas of history that are based upon fabrication yeah, I think I think that's right, and I think you know that, so so that whole kind of um, pitch of the Castle of Otranto as this fake manuscript, you know, it's something we're very familiar with um, from the rest of um, Gothic kind of writing, or, or you know even found footage, mm-hmm. you know texts, films. Um, they they're kind of trying to pass off something uh, on you, and you know we think obviously this is just a convention. We know this is not true, but you know the first time that the Blair Witch Project came out in 99 um, it was one of the first uh, films to use the internet in order to create a kind of wider context for the film so when people looked up the Blair Witch Project on this newfangled internet they found stuff about the Blair Witch bloody hell this is true Mm -hmm. this this is actually you know there's wider information here so it's really actually easy to kind of persuade people one of my um, favourite moments was I was asked to to a conference of medievalists, actually, to just to talk about contemporary literature and its version of the medieval. I was trying to sort of say the same thing that you've just said, really, which is that we live through a whole series of fakes of, of kind of, you know, um, renditions of, of the past that have nothing to do with it. And, you know, it doesn't matter how many medievalists kind of decry this. It, it's how we kind of manufacture um, history. And uh, I talked about Peter Ackroyd, who's very good at putting these fake man- manuscripts yeah. together, and he's very good at pastiche and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, the very, very eminent medieval historian came up to me and said, but the thing about uh, Ackroyd is that he lies. He's always lying. He puts this preface in that says that it's a medieval text, and it clearly isn't. And you're thinking, wow. <laughs> so actually... Otranto's trick still works you know yeah. it's it's still effective someone who's who's not at all familiar as as we are and as the listeners are with the conventions of the gothic can be tricked by it really straightforwardly mm. uh you know just exactly like um italian judges you know banning um cannibal holocaust because uh, <laughs> they murdered people to make the film you know yeah. uh, no they didn't there's this thing called special effects yeah. but you know that sense of, of of which you're not quite certain you're hesitant about the 
truth status of what it is you're looking mm. at is something that we really like the, the the shiver of i think and that's what's really good about the gothic yeah indeed i mean kind of they went they went further they actually made diodato produce his actors uh, because they were convinced he murdered them. They did. Yeah. That's right. They did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I can produce them. We didn't yeah. eat them. Yeah. yeah. That's right. I mean, yeah, to bring I know, that, amazing to bring that even further into the the contemporary. I've already mentioned Slenderman, but um, yeah. the entire Slenderman myth came out of this creepy pasta forum where someone was someone avowedly a guy called Eric Knudsen um, avowedly said, "I have made this image. It is part of a competition," and then the the fan base, for a better word, took it and and stitched together a retrospective false history. So they they kind of did this thing where they went, okay, we'll absorb we'll absorb your admission that that <laughs> this right. is a lie, but we will then tell you, okay, it may be a lie, but what's actually happened is you've created that image because of some some primal cultural zeitgeist that you're tapping into, and then they were like, all right, even if you say it's fake, look at this image from a fresco and a um, an Italian chapel, and, it, and they basically took archaeological remains and doctored them digitally to show things that weren't there so that they could then retrospectively change history to make someone's admission of falsity erroneous. Yeah. I mean, that is the ultimate yeah. gothic parlour trick. Yeah, and, and you know, gruesomely, of course, we know that, that um, some people took the Slender Man myth so seriously they ended up, you know, murdering someone on the basis of it, sacrificing someone to the slender man and those two girls are now you know forever in jail this this scandalous um decision where they're not going to be released at yeah. least at the moment you know and that that the sort of power of that myth to it's not just children it's not just uh, the gullible you know all of us actually uh, increasingly with deep fake culture and so on uh, can be caught out by these um, by these fabrications. But that's, you know, the Gothic is really good training for understanding just how easy it is to play on people's really extreme emotions, manipulate them and turn them around so that the fake becomes true and the true becomes fake. We've already kind of exploded history here, Roger. We <laughs> we have. We're always going to do that. From Otranto to Slenderman in about 10 minutes. So I, I, I'm going to try and corral us back on track for momentarily. Otranto happened. We had 30 years of people riffing on the Gothic romance, uh, people like Clara Reeve with the Old English Baron. But the real next concrete steps came in, this, in the 1790s with a pair of texts that set up so much that was to follow. And, and you've mentioned them already. It was Anne Radcliffe's The Mistress of Udolpho in 1794 yeah. and The Monk by Matthew Lewis in 1796. And we can't dwell on them. We'll, so I'll ask... I'll ask you to elaborate on one thing, which is that they th those two texts really kind of ushered in this bifurcation or, or schism between the explained versus unexplained supernatural that's actually been kind of carrying on on parallel tram lines ever since. Could you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, so. So the explained supernatural is famously attached to Anne Radcliffe because her her purpose in her books was a moral one. It was a moral education of the reader, which is that she was going to put you into positions where you thought something supernatural had happened. You know, uh, you see a ghost in the corridor, or you open a door and see this gruesome um, corpse rotting away. 
And then actually what she does is, you know, three or 400 or 500 pages later, Adolfo is very, very, very long. Um, <laughs> you get an explanation of what that um, scene has been. So, you know, famously, she swoons away. A lot of swooning uh, going on in uh, Mistress of Adolfo. Swoons in horror, but actually... The education is what you've seen as a waxwork, not a, not an actual supernatural intrusion into the world. There are none in the Protestant, you know, low church kind of definition of the world. There are no miracles. There are no supernatural divine intervention at all. You need to, to explain everything by natural law, which is what um, Anne Radcliffe does all the time. In contrast, Matthew Lewis is uh, setting his work in credulous, superstitious Spain uh, at the time of the Inquisition. So this is Catholicism. And as far as the uh, English are concerned in the 18th century, you know, European Catholicism is, is, is ridiculous, savage belief. It gives too much power to priests. Uh, it's, it's entirely full of the miraculous. It believes all of these uh, stupid kind of stories about saints and relics and so on. And he wants to get rid of all of that. And what Lewis understands is we can still exploit the, the kind of fear of that, you know, the, the sense that actually all of that might be true in, and, and that the, these kind of primitive beliefs might actually have some credence. And, in, and if you think about it all the way up to folk horror, that sense in which what if those um, savage backroom beliefs or backwards um, you know, redneck kind of beliefs. What if they were true? Actually, they're not they're not pre-modern and savage and superstitious. They've got it right. These things do still exist. So there's that kind of, you know, sense of playing a little bit on um the the, the supernatural. It's like um Freud says in uh, The Uncanny, you know, we all think we're really sophisticated, grown up, um uh, people who who don't have these childhood superstitions anymore. But at three o'clock in the morning, we hear a creak and we are back being four years old and utterly terrified that there's a ghost outside. You know, that sort of thing. You slide back straight away. And that kind of gothic um, horror is, is, is playing on that. And then just the other thing I would add, the difference between these two that's really important to understand, I think, is that Anne Radcliffe is seen as uh, more tasteful, high culture uh, or higher culture still mocked by someone like Jane Austen in Northanger Abbey, of course. Um, but there's no doubt that Matthew Lewis is low culture, the lowest of the low. It's appealing to your worst, lowest um, physiological set of sensations. So Anne Radcliffe is imagination in the 18th century, so really stretching your mind. And Lewis is all about fancy. It's all about the really kind of low uh, physiological kind of uh, responses to things so you know the, the the jump shock is the is the lowest form of of, of horror film these days you know because it's so easy to do that to someone but nevertheless we still enjoy it but that's low culture kubrick shining very high culture stephen king shining very low culture you see what i mean so that sets up a divide inside the gothic between what's respectable and what isn't as well we may have fallen out there, though, Roger, because I, I despise Kubrick's film and I am a massive Stephen King fanatic. So, Have you ever seen Stephen King's five-hour version of The Shining that he did for TV? With Rebecca de Mornay, yeah. It's terrible. It's terrible, but... Yeah, it's it, absolutely it, bloody terrible. It, it, <laughs> it, is, it is a better adaptation, though, than Kubrick's. 
<laughs> it's a more faithful adaptation of the Kubrick. I mean, that's the thing that I mean. I, I sort of I understand why why people don't like it, and it, there's nothing more irritating to a gothic fan than someone blundering into your genre and thinking that they understand it. So I'm sure we can all think about films of late that have done that and uh, have been, you know, profoundly irritating. And I do get that. I understand that. Um, but I, but I think you know, adaptation doesn't have to be faithful. And uh, he saw something there that was completely and profoundly different from King, but nevertheless equally effective. I think. But you know, we can argue about that forever. I had a chat the other day with um, the film critic Mark Commode. I asked him. We were talking about our um, our favorite book to movie adaptations of horror films, and he said this thing that has kind of reconciled my. <laughs> unhappiness with the shining he said mm. that sorry listeners by the way this is a massive um kind of tangent but he said that <laughs> that kubrick's the shining is not so much an adaptation of king's the shining as it is another version of Shirley jackson's haunting of hill house yeah yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. that makes way more sense to me. <laughs> I just, I, yeah. I, yeah. Anyway, I won't go on. I think I've already gone at length several times about my issues with the various Shining iterations. So we'll leave it. But right. So so in, in we've spent like 40 minutes and we've got 30 years through the Gothic and three books. So we're doing well. Not bad. As we leave the 18th century and it's kind of codified idea of, of gothic in the way you said as a uh, deeply theological construct and all of these things we we then kind of whisk on into the 19th century which is when we begin to see more titles that i think will be recognizable to the average reader mm. and for me it's the century in which the gothic moves away from its partnership with the romance and towards a blending with horror and when we come back, we can discuss that in a lot more detail, talking about some fairly key texts. Uh, but for now, Roger, I'd just like to say thank you for this tour through the 18th century, and thanks for talking scared so far. <laughs> We're back again to carry on this mammoth task of of tracing the, the liniments of the Gothic through the ages. If you're sitting comfortably, brandy in hand. I mean, it's it's four in the afternoon, but, you know, needs must. <laughs> right. Basically, broad question. If you had to take someone on a on a very brief guided tour of the Gothic of the 19th century, which text would you pick out as the as the must reads? Okay, so um, that is a really big question. And um, it, it, so, so that sometimes the history of the Gothic goes like this. 1764 to the 1790s is, you know, the origin and then a real peak. And it's not just Radcliffe and Lewis. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these books uh, that, that were published, things that have completely fallen out of memory, but those are the ones we, we picked out. Um, there's a kind of a peak in the 1790s, and really sometimes we put the cap on it, the last kind of bracket, the closing bracket, with Frankenstein uh, in 1818. So Mary Shelley's Frankenstein being almost like a closing bracket. Uh, and it, it's a sort of, you know, the high point of, of, of that wave. Uh, it transforms the Gothic from this 
lowly um, uh, physiological um, Matthew Lewis terror monk kind of stuff uh, into, you know, the the romantic sublime heights of the Alps. So literally, you know, um, Frankenstein um, being chased or pursuing the monster through these sublime landscapes of the Alps or the or the Arctic and so on. And then it sort of goes quiet, the Gothic, and and disperses into perhaps into the mainstream uh, for a few years and then comes back with the late Victorian Gothic. I mean, I think there's a different narrative to tell, which is it doesn't really ever go away. Um, And I think now historians of the Gothic are beginning to understand that in the 1820s and the 1830s, that was the real high point of the so-called penny bloods. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these were endless kind of, you know, millions of words uh, that came out in weekly installments, maybe six or seven pages long. Uh, Varney the Vampire or, um, you know, the the Sweeney Todd, the, um, the butcher of... Uh, Fleet Street, you know, all of those sorts of things. These are really long kind of uh, extended horror stories that keep going and keep going and keep going. So and that they they are genuine mass culture, you know, hundreds of thousands of people read those. So when if you're a literary historian, you tend to sort of avoid those because they're quite difficult to to capture. Uh, They're enormous, thousands of pages long. So people tend to go, okay, so the Gothic disperses perhaps into mainstream books uh, perhaps a little bit even into realist novels, so uh, or heightened realism. So Dickens, Wilkie Collins, you know the the sensation fiction of the eighteen sixties, The Woman in White, eighteen sixty, say. Um, Bleak House by Dickens is full of um, gothic tropes, you know, ghosts that walk, um, uh, monstrous secrets, manuscripts, detection, uh, murders, you know, all that sort of stuff is it's all in there. Spontaneous uh, human then, combustion. Spontaneous human combustion, yes, which um, Dickens had a long argument with uh, with, with critics about because he firmly believed it did yeah. actually happen, uh, and he was of course a practicing mesmerist at this time as well. So you know, the, the, it, 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 it's still there; it's still available. And of course, most famously, the Victorian period is associated with the ghost story and the rise of the ghost story. We think about you know the the kind of golden age of that being. Uh, mid to late 19th century going into the Edwardian era. Uh, but people like Bulwer Lytton, uh, the haunted and the haunters, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, Margaret Oliphant wrote some absolutely fantastic ghost stories. Charlotte Riddell, you know, the ghost story is actually quite a female form. We tend to teach men, but actually there are loads and loads of collections now of Victorian uh, ghost stories by women. Uh, which are really worth pursuing. Uh, Edith Nesbitt even wrote some great, you know, nasty um, uh, short stories. So, you know, the, it, it never quite goes away, in fact, but it's it's definitely a kind of parallel position. And it is definitely the case that there is a very self-conscious Gothic revival, I think, at the in the late 19th century because of different conditions of publishing. But maybe that's for part two. Mm-hmm. So... Frankenstein probably needs no more dwelling on. I mean, most people are familiar with Frankenstein. Although, I think Frankenstein and Dracula are probably the two novels in the English language that there is the biggest gulf between what people think the story is and what <laughs> the story is. Just because I mean, it's been kind of reiterated in cinema. Um, Frankenstein, yeah. the story, is, is a very different beast to most adaptations of it. I, If you want the most, um, I would say the most authentic cinematic adaptation of Frankenstein, it probably would be Branagh's 
Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm. which is widely derided, but I have yeah. quite a fondness for. Um, but yeah, Frankenstein mm. is, is its thing. I don't need to rehash that here. In 1824, we have Melmoth the Wanderer, uh, oh, yeah, which is a gargantuan novel about a kind of dark figure who who recurs in in different guises in different places it's it's quite a, a global story it's an all-encompassing tale but it, it is it's one of the first gothic novels which does that thing that we talk about centuries later in house of leaves where it turns the book itself into a gothic yeah. labyrinth that you've got to find your yeah. way through this text and work out how it fits together um it's an incredible novel, but it's not an easy read. Probably don't take that one to the beach. Um, and then <laughs> y- you mentioned it, the the gothic kind of seeging into realist fiction. And mm. you get novels like Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre. And yep. full admission, Wuthering Heights is my favourite British novel ever written. Still think it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I live in Ramsbottom, so about 25 minutes from Haworth, where the Brontes grew up, and you can go there and, and see the places that, that, that inspired that story, as well as parts of Jane Eyre. Um, but yeah, but that is that, that Gothic registry. It became much more about mouldering houses on the moors, in the wilds, and secrets held mm-hmm. therein. And, and these stories become, they become almost ghost stories without the ghost, don't they? You know, they become haunted. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's yeah. Okay. I, th- I do think that's right. It's uh, the, the Brontes are thoroughly saturated in Gothic writing. I think, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, they, both those books, but particularly Wuthering Heights, is this. I mean, they are labyrinths as well, in the sense that they are stories within stories within stories. So Chinese box kind of type construction, and that, and right at the centre of it, you know, you have this. Um, kind of supernatural figure of Heathcliff, actually, who 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 really does kind of seem, and this love does seem to survive death and does seem to continue after the grave. And it's full of these kind of occult, and one might almost want to say psychical kind of experiences of connection across distance. I mean, as is Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre is full of that stuff too. Um, that is a, a, Jane Eyre is a classic Gothic haunted house story, um, just done in a slightly different register, but it still has these telepathic kind of connections, moments of of linkage across distance between uh, Jane and Rochester, you know, that sort of sense of, of, of the supernatural kind of flowing through that. People tend to forget just how gothic those those things are. But I mean, I, I, I once you understand the genre and its tropes, you see just how thoroughly gothic those two classic texts are. So mm-hmm. it's kind of, it sort of hides in plain sight, I think, the gothic in the 19th century. And before we finish for this first episode, what about America? Because as we get into the 1840s, suddenly it starts kicking off over there as well. And we have <laughs> we have Charles Brockton Brown and Washington Irving who wrote mm. Sleepy Hollow. And, and most famously, we have Edgar Allan Poe. Um, yeah. To, again, I'm, okay, I, so I'm asking you big so it, questions here, Roger. I don't, I don't expect okay. you to give us comprehensive answers. I'm just using it as a kind of way to get to get you tell me what you think. You know, mm. um, I know these are things we I can't, I'm not going to pin you down and say that's what Roger thinks. But. Um, simply put, how do you see the relationship between European or British and American Gothic in those early decades of the of the nineteenth century? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I think that's a really crucial question, isn't it? Because because the Gothic is definitely moves 
to its centre moves from um, Britain and Europe in the 19th century to become an American kind of form as well in the in the 20th century. But it's worth bearing in mind um, that Charles Brockton Brown uh, was the first professional novelist in the new uh, white settler republic of America. Uh, so 1798, you know, it's very, very early that he produces, you know, this handful of very strange and disordered texts uh, that are very Gothic and were explicitly sold as Gothic. And then Washington Irving is actually early as well, you know, so 1820s, 1810s. Um, and there is uh, a very famous um, uh, history of American literature by Leslie Fiedler mm -hmm. called Love and Death in the American Novel. And what he argues is that every text written in uh, the Settler Republic of the United States of America is Gothic. Uh, it's founded in the Gothic. Uh, and why? Because it's thoroughly saturated in the blood that um, ne is necessary to, to spill in order to create you know, the, the, the America that we know now. So both the destruction, the genocidal destruction of Native Americans, but also, you know, the institution of slavery as well. And that's all kind of, you know, horrifyingly um, happening behind that early Gothic. Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, um, was a Southern gentleman from uh, Virginia, adopted uh, by a man who was, you know, very pro-slavery and came from a pro-slavery uh, family. And there are some critics, again, who read things like um, the short story, The Black Cat, uh, this really annoying black creature uh, that um, reveals the crime, that, that, that betrays uh, the horrible crime that's happened as a kind of story about race uh, and a story of the horror of race. And you might see that, too, in things like The Fall of the House of Usher, you know, this condemned last scion of uh, an aristocratic family. So I think the Gothic does transpose. And if you think about it, you know, the initial white settlers are all terrified Puritans uh, who are hiding in these little settlements. They see themselves as surrounded by a sea of devils and infidels and a monstrous wasteland that God is demanding be cultivated and civilised and Christianized. Um, and it's no wonder that they harbour all of these strange, awful kind of fantasies. I mean, again, you know, The Witch, the recent film by Robert Eggers, is perfect kind of histor historical analysis of that, of how a community can, in a sense, create its own devils in these uh, very early settlements in America. So that would be my short stroke long answer to um, America and the Gothic. No, that's great, because I'm glad you touched on what I always call the two primal stains of America, which is mm. the Native American genocide and slavery. And you could you could add in a kind of third, should we say, minor strand of the Salem witch trials and the, the Puritan sure. panic, you know, but but they seem to be the the under the wires beneath the skeleton of beneath the, yeah. beneath the taxidermy of what American Gothic is. Um, is those those three stains, those three primal sins, and they just get played yeah. out again and again and again. And it's the idea that British Gothic or you know European Gothic, they are largely the same thing. Um, are you know the, the, the horror in that is largely man-made. It's about feudalism. It's about the fear of the church. It's about the fear of aristocracy and or, or the fear of the fall of aristocracy and all of these human mm. institutions falling apart. 
Whereas in American Gothic, sometimes there is the idea that the land itself is stained, that the 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 world itself is dangerous. Yeah, I think I, I mean I do think that's right. I think it's quite important to. Uh, I've only just begun to. This is part of the research I did for the for the book um, to understand the religious meaning of wilderness mm. uh, and the sense in which the Bible for the Puritans was saying: if you do not cultivate the land, you know, if you don't turn this wasted land into cultivated land, then it's godless. You know, it's 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 the place of the devil. It's where Christ went into the wilderness for forty days, and they meant that being the, the landscape, the land beyond your settlement. Uh, so there is this kind of religious imperative to go out, cultivate, but also either convert or destroy um, the, the people who opposed your belief. You know, they, they, they refused to kind of consider America as the city on the hill. So therefore, they had to be swept out of the way. They were part of the wilderness. They were waste people. Uh, as they were called, so so I think there is something you know crucial for that to un- to understand that as well. As we get to the end of the Victorian period, we get this insanely productive decade of art and culture <laughs> called the the fin de siècle, which means end of century, and that that phrase means end of any century, but it's used in a sort of capital letter sense to mean the the decade 1890 to 1900 although sometimes people have wiggle room either side of it mm. um but what's for sure is those those few short years gave us a pantheon of the most enduring monsters that still haunt popular culture there's dot jekyll and mr hyde there's the invisible man there's dorian gray there's some of h rider haggard's um sort of you know, entities and and the same from Rudyard Kipling, but Lord over them all is Count Dracula. Now, mm-hmm. I know it's a big question, but do you have any kind of idea of what kickstarted this frenzy of monstrosity? Yeah, I think it's um, uh, there. There are a couple of answers to that, and again, there's there's one which talks about the form. Of the Gothic, so it's taking a new form, and then also perhaps it's um, about content or about theme because it's it's responding to a new uh, cultural historical situation. So the first part of the answer would be that it's really important to understand that the the, the majority of uh, Victorian novels were three volumes long. So anyone who's dropped George Eliot on their foot knows how long they are, uh, and they were always published. Um, and, and circulated through these so-called circulating libraries. So W.H. Smith's started out as a circulating library. And what you'd do is you'd hire volume one. Uh, you, uh, as, a, as a patriarch, would, would read this out to your family, uh, whether they liked it or not, uh, over, <laughs> over a fire in the evening. Uh, that was your sole entertainment, whether you liked George Eliot or not. Uh, then you'd hire volume two and hire volume three and so on. Now, in the 1880s, that system begins to be challenged and uh, there's an absolutely massive collapse of the idea of just simply hiring literature. People came up with the bright idea that what if we just sold it, but sold it at a much cheaper rate? Um, So by 1894, the three-volume novel was basically dead. Uh, And if you think about Thomas Hardy, he stopped writing for for other reasons, but by 1894... 1895-6, he was, he was giving up on that form and actually didn't write any more novels. Uh, he turned to poetry. And that's partly because there isn't, there isn't any kind of 
form for him to write in anymore. What comes in is the much shorter book, the punchier book. So Jekyll and Hyde is a so-called railway novel. And what that means is that it's short enough uh, to be quite cheap, but also to be sold from railway stalls. So the idea was you could read this in one journey. Um, so, so they were much shorter, much faster, much punchier, less uh, of this tortuous Victorian rhetoric that we find a little bit difficult to read these days. Uh, and they feel incredibly modern. And so there's that, but there's also the rise of the so-called, and this is a new term in the 1880s, the short story. Uh, but also then the serial short story, so something like um, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and these are all massive new um, economic forms that are beginning to emerge. So, so that's why Stevenson is so important, is Treasure Island, which was 83, was seen as a revival of an older romance form, uh, partly a kind of, you know, focused on children, but also um, it was for adults who wanted uh, a lighter, quicker, more sensational kind of read. And then Ryder Haggard is the one who really secures that kind of form. So in 1885, he published King Solomon's Mines, and then in 1886, uh, She. Uh, and every year for the next uh, about 40 years, uh, Haggard published at least one of those a year, and they sold absolutely massively. Mm -hmm. so, so there's a kind of revival in this form, but it's also a new kind of form. And then in 1890, um, finally, authors get international copyright. So they start making loads of money from different markets. You know, Stevenson made no money in America from Jekyll and Hyde because it wasn't in copyright. It was just pirated. After 1890, you could make a living out of this. And it's 1890, the year that Arthur Conan Doyle turns professional author because he can now make vast amounts of money, much more than as a doctor, um, through selling this stuff. So that's a really important context. You know, someone like um, Stoker is really understanding that, Rudyard Kipling, all of these sorts of sensational short ghost stories and gothic stories really sell very, very well. Um, and they, they, they get vast amounts of money just for a, a really short, a short, short story. So, you know, there's an economic and uh, formal kind of shift. And then there's also, you know, we haven't even talked about content yet. And there is something, I think, about the late Victorian period that is really um, speaks to um, the tropes of the Gothic. So suddenly the Gothic genre offers a whole load of kind of tools, a whole load, load of images, which allow you to explore um, new kinds of um, territories that are beginning to emerge. So famously, uh, Jekyll and Hyde um, is uh, emerging just about the time that we're beginning to understand sex and sexuality and the idea of repression, uh, the fact that repression might not be such a good thing, uh, but that articulating your desire might might make you slightly healthier than uh, this absolute divide between Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, and it's the same perhaps with Dracula in 1897, um, which is a peculiar moment. If you think about it, Dracula comes out in the year of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. This is the height of um, the British Empire, absolute height. And yet what we've got is a vision, an anxiety dream about an invasion that comes in um, through uh, shipping and uh, hides in plain sight, uh, first up in Whitby and then down in London, and kind of emerges out and starts to infect 
uh, the very center of empire. And it has to be these, you know, band of Christian brothers that get together to expel this monstrous be being. So there's a, like an odd sense in which the Gothic can be something which allows people to articulate fear or anxiety in an era when we are supposed to be on top of the world. We're supposed to be the absolutely dominant nation and empire of the world. And yet here we are harboring these secret fears and perhaps the secret knowledge that if you're at the top, the only way is down. Yeah, and of course, then in the early years of the 20th century, we've got, we got our arses handed to us in the Boer War. Um, right. And the, the whole panic yeah. around the condition of empire, as they called it, and the fact that it's oh, the house of cards is coming falling down. And, and a lot of these novels seemed to be precursors mm. to that because they were about the degeneration of society and in particular of masculinity because you've got Oscar yeah. Wilde, you know, writing um, his aesthetic premise behind Dorian Gray, uh, which is an overtly mm. piece of queer fiction, um, which sent him to prison, essentially. You, as I said in the last mm. episode, you've got Jekyll and Hyde and Dracula, which are both about men pursuing men for various nefarious purposes. Um Ryder Haggard and Rudyard Kipling were both, you know, writing staunch imperial tales, but they were often about, you know, white, public school educated men coming a cropper in the provinces, um, yeah. in the colonies. And th there was this sense that, as you say, we're riding high, but we are vulnerable to degeneration, whether from within or whether from without. But it seems that Dracula yeah. is the one that again and again and again has been used as a endlessly movable kind of motif for some kind of infection from beyond. I, I wrote a piece, weirdly, for The Guardian during the the absolute fuck-up that was Brexit. I, I have hold my cards on. My my, my cards are very open for everyone to see on that one. Um, where I talked about what will the gothic fiction that comes from the anxiety of Brexit be? And weirdly, I think it's irrelevant now because COVID's kind of wiped that table clean in terms of what we're anxious about. Um, but it felt very much like the Brexit era was the 1890s come again. That sense of, you know, protect our boards at all costs. And I wrote this thing about how Nigel Farage would be horrified by Dracula because he famously said he would move house if some Romanians moved next door. And I was like, mate, you mm. want to read Dracula because a Romanian moves in next door and this shit hits the fan. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I I, I think there's a there, there are lots of parallels there, you know, to to high and end of empire. I quite yeah. agree. I mean, just going back to to the kind of Victorian, you know, that late Victorian moment and the crisis of masculinity. I mean, what what we do uh, often point to, I think, are these kind of moments of real trauma. So, in 1879, um, in South Africa, we were trying to the British Empire. We uh, we're trying to, you know, consolidate um, territory um, around, you know, diamond and gold discoveries and so on. Uh, and we thought that basically we just needed to sweep the Boers out of the way, these Dutch settlers, but also the Zulu nation, which was, a, you know, a really sophisticated, um, gigantic empire of its own. And in 1879, we actually lost to the Zulus, you know, mm -hmm. the, the army was sent out to annihilate them and they lost. And there's this kind of profound trauma about this. And what England tends to do in these situations is just simply um, build uh, an even bigger army and then go and absolutely massacre them uh, as, as a kind of revenge attack. And what we tend to do is celebrate those kind of, you know, martyrs. So 
the Battle of Rourke's Drift. Um, even if you don't know what it's about, you've probably heard of it. You know, the mm. most Victoria crosses. These were the men who defended just a tiny uh, house against these awful savages for, for 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 hours and hours and hours. Great heroes who who we lost. So that was 1879, and we kind of got over that. But as you say, in 1899, the Boer War, uh, this attempt to to just get rid of these annoying Boer Dutch farmers who wouldn't bow to English uh, power, um, they also used these brand new guerrilla tactics, which completely confounded the British Army, who tended to wander around in perfect squares, because that's how you fight. Uh, and they were completely overwhelmed. And that was also another trauma. And then after that kind of uh, victory, again, you just pour millions and millions into this in a much bigger army uh, and you win eventually. Um, but there was a, a, an inquiry into what was called the physiological deterioration of, um, of the men of the army. It was blamed on um, poor health and education of the working classes. And that's actually, ironically, the beginning of the welfare state. So it's quite soon after that that we start to get, you know, um, national milk um, being, you know, services being delivered to working class families in order to build up their bones, you know, so that they weren't so uh, weak and feeble and could fight on behalf of the British Empire. So there's all these kind of things going on. And then there's also a kind of crisis around, as we were saying, you know, sexuality, the idea in beginning to emerge that men might desire men. Uh, and this first use of the word homosexuality was 1869. Uh, it was made illegal in 1885, acts of gross indecency between men. And that's what was um, the law that um, Oscar Wilde was prosecuted under in 1895. So there's a kind of sense of we need to police uh, men and police them uh, in order for them to be proper, virile, fighting fit, literally fighting fit. Uh, and and also, you know, police their sexuality, control their kind of desires and pleasures. And out of that, you get all of this gothic leaking from the corners um, so that, you know, as we know, Dracula is supposed to be this monstrous, horrifying other who actually looks pretty interesting sexually, you know, very, very kind of mobile sexuality, seems to be having quite a good time in there. And that sense of of, of the horror of, of this different kind of sexuality. So there's a whole cluster of things in the late Victorian period, which makes it like a pressure cooker, that mm. you get all of this emerging kind of fiction uh, in the Gothic register, which is which is able to do such extraordinary things without sometimes realising what it itself is doing. Yeah. And I just cannot help but see shades of that today with the the endless anxiety over identity politics and over further fracturing of of what is, you know, quotation marks, normal um it just feels like we're going through the same yeah, thing I mean, again. I, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, I, I have a kind of theory, I think, about um, Brexit horror, as I call it, um, because I think, you know, there is a sort of sense of, um, there's a clear revival of the ideas of um, Victorian empire, actually empire in general. Uh, it's really striking that quite a lot of the pro-Brexit politicians use language like buccaneering spirit mm -hmm. and, and, and this idea, which is going right back to um, 
the origins of empire. So it was always semi-legal. Uh, you relied on um, people like Cecil Rhodes in South Africa to do illegal things. And then you just came in as a state afterwards and just said, oh, well, he's taken all this territory. We might as well just claim it. But it wasn't us. It was somebody else. Uh, that's why, you know, Brexiteers are so happy about breaking laws. It's because that's how the empire was made, by breaking international law. Um, so there's a lot there. Um, but then there's also, you know, even down to the recent alliance of the UK, America and Australia, that's an explicitly imperial federalist idea. They wanted to recreate a white Commonwealth. Very explicitly in the 1890s, the Imperial Federation League talked about a white Commonwealth. So, you know, America would reunite with British Empire and with Canada and with um, Australia and New Zealand, these white settler colonies would become the major force in the world. And that is just the direct fantasy you see again today. Well, I agree, because I've been saying for a while now, my, my kind of cultural theory about life at the minute is that we are, we are mired in, a era, in an era of nostalgia. Um, and mm. I have this really trivial thing that I, I always trot out where I say that basically the TV show Downton Abbey is a trip mm. is a Trojan horse for racists <laughs> and imperialists. I'm not saying you can't like Downton Abbey, but the way that that show and other shows like it have spent the last decade kind of tr just like running out these ideas that mm. th it was better back then. It's so in America when you've got Trump saying things like, you know. He doesn't want Parasite to win the Oscars. He wants, why can't we have good films like Gone with the Wind? It's not that far from mm. saying, why can't we have good films like, like Birth of a Nation? You know what I mean? It's, it's mm. always there in the background. And it feels like nostalgia is being weaponized against progress. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think I mean, you know, I agree with quite a lot of that. So I think the 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 other thing is that history has its has many uses. So um, you know, Julian Fellows, who was the creator of Downton Abbey, is you know publicly and avowedly uh, now a, a Tory peer. So and has been you know open in his conservatism and open in his ideas of that. And Downton Abbey is all about you know class structures and knowing your place. But I think the you know it gets more complicated when you look at things like folk horror in the Brexit era, because that's not straightforward nostalgia. That's kind of trying to suggest that there are some levers in our deep past, which actually might be able to work against modernity and against the specific kind of horrific version uh, of, you know, the modern world that we that we have in neoliberal um, economy. In other words, you know, the, 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 it can be complicated. So that the, it depends what past you're talking about. Some mm. pasts, some deep pasts might be places where, you know, giants are sleeping, monsters are sleeping, and, and you might kind of, you know, conjure them against uh, the modern world and against uh, the horrors that it contains. So you might well have panic, you know, panic narratives about people wandering into forests and so on. But actually, there's always that subversive element to um, quite a lot of interesting uh, folk horror. It, you know, we're on the side of um, of Lord Summerisle, aren't we? In, um, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> in the Wicker Man. We, we kind of, you know, we, we don't want to be with the Puritan policeman. We can see way, way beyond uh, what his narrow prejudiced kind of view of things is. You know, we want we want that weird folk culture to kind of survive and exist. So I think there's kind of a, a subversion there. And again, you know, Blood on Satan's Claw is all about 
um, uh, hippie revolution, isn't it? This this sense of revolution against these really restrictive kind of powers. So I think there is a, this is what's great about the Gothic is that you can flip value all the time. Some people can say it's incredibly conservative and consoling. Uh, you know the Stephen King position, uh, but others would would say, well, actually, you know, there are it's it's allowing space for uh, transgressive or um, uh, oppositional statements to be made. So the answer is always it's complicated. Indeed, indeed, we could just we could have just said that, couldn't we? Just call the we'll call the episode that at least anyway. <laughs> um, right. So again, going back into history, we're, so we're leaving. Yep. Britain in the grip of a kind of just generalized anxiety disorder about its own place in the world. Going over to America, where, as we said previously, Gothic is both the the underlying register of of most American culture in its infancy, uh, and it certainly yeah. becomes the literature of the nation. And then it flip reverses, in which it becomes the most Gothic even though it stops being that all American literature is Gothic, but it becomes that most really prominent Gothic literature is American for a while. Mm. Um, Going into the early decades, the first half of the 20th century, who were the key names you would point out as being representative of, of American Gothic? Yeah. Okay. So, so when we turn to America, I think there's a there's a similar kind of story which I'll try and keep quick um, about the change of form. And I think what's really important to understand in America is the rise of the pulp magazine, mm-hmm. uh, and that was happening from the 1890s onwards, but really hits its stride in the 1920s. So you get that's where science fiction magazines start to arrive, where you get genre specific things, detective fiction, um, hard boiled or what we would call noir fiction, but also, you know, famously things like Weird Tales, which begins in 1923. Um, so I think, you know, one of the um, unavoidable figures to to look at here is H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, he was associated with uh, Weird Tales, but often rejected by them, actually. Uh, he published from roughly 1916-17 up to his death in 1936. And he had a whole kind of cluster of people around him and people he influenced as well. So... You know, Robert E. Howard, um, Robert Bloch, a very young guy who wrote Psycho eventually, but was, you know, in his um, literary circle, if that's what it was. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith, you know, these kinds of people were, were really kind of key. So you get this very low cultural kind of form. At the same time, you're also beginning to get um, more kind of mainstream um, acceptance of perhaps particularly the ghost story. Um, uses of that. So I think we tend to think of these kind of weird or strange writers like uh, Shirley Jackson mm-hmm. uh, or Richard Matheson, who was a big influence on Stephen King uh, in the mid kind of century period. Um, and then, of course, uh, a, a massive eruption in the 1970s, which we'll talk about at a later date. But that's what, you know, there's kind of a, there's a cluster around Lovecraft and in before the war, and then a cluster that emerges out of paperbacks uh, in the 1945 onwards period. Yeah, so, okay, let's, let's get into the old racist tentacle himself, H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft. Obviously, his, his name lives on. If anything, he's gained more mm-hmm. cultural currency recently, actually. I mean, there's video games, there's board games, there's books and shows yeah. like Lovecraft Country and Hellboy. And there was 
there was an an alien rip-off film last year called Underwater, starring Kristen Stewart, which was actually pretty yep. good. Have you seen it? I have, yeah. Right, spoiler alert, <laughs> at the very end, you find out that the monster is Cthulhu, which I enjoyed, yep. but yeah. Uh, so Lovecraft is everywhere. <laughs> but for yep. those who perhaps haven't read him or aren't quite as aware of his influence, I suppose... How would you position his contribution to horror in theme, if not in form? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, he is incredibly influential after his lifetime. You know, he was he he hardly registered um, in during his life. And he was quite happy with that. He, he published in amateur journals and small circulation things and amongst friends. You know, it was it was it was fine. And it's almost a mistake um that that he became this kind of key figure after the 1960s when he was his work was being published in in a mass paperback form um and what he does is he tends to write um very long short stories so you know over 10,000 words um they are nearly always uh, about a lone uh, male figure who uh, is unraveling a particular kind of enigma or visits a, a, a place, a village like Innsmouth, something not quite right. Uh, and they investigate this and uncover a kind of sort of something that's truly cosmically horrifying, you know, an ancient creature that has far pre-existed humanity or um, an alien that's landed who is so utterly other that we can't even have the words to describe it. And he's famously always saying, it is indescribable, I cannot find the words to describe this indescribable, monstrous, eldritch, horrifying thing, you know, and it just goes on and on and on, describing the indescribable. Um, and that, that that's the sort of classic thing. His classic story would be um, The Call of Thulu. Uh, if you don't like um, uh, the sound of all of this, just read The Call of Thulu. You know, because it's it's all of his themes in the most economic version. Lots of different fragments of text that lead up towards the discovery of this, you know, ancient sea god. So there's there's all of that um, going on. But I think the context for him, which is controversial, and I'm sure you know your listeners know all about this, uh, is that it's undoubted, undoubtedly, and objectively the case that uh, Lovecraft was a right-wing nativist, which is that he believed that the white races were the strongest. Uh, He was the last scion of two very old white settler families, so he felt he was the last uh, in line. Uh, And he wrote very, very explicitly in racist terms, pathologically racist terms, actually, uh, about the incoming uh, races. Uh, He spent a short time in Red Hook, Uh, in Brooklyn, which at that time was the largest uh, port in the world. And as we all know, ports are very multicultural, lots of people coming in and out. Uh, And he wrote this really formative, uh, nasty story called The Horror at Red Hook, which is explicitly about, you know, these miscegenate, awful races who are secretly worshipping demons. Uh, And that's a sense of, of the horror um, of these tentacular others is clearly a kind of racial horror. And it's it's part of a movement, a nativist movement. There are many people at the time who were saying um, that America is committing race suicide. The white races will be wiped out by blending. Uh, it's the great replacement theory that alt-right thinkers still use today. Uh, so America first that... Um, Uh, Trump used is a direct echo of 1920s movement, which was avowedly nativist and racist. 
And uh, Lovecraft is part of that culture. He's essential. It's essential to understanding how he thinks. His horror is racist. There's nothing else you can say about it. Um, it. It is clearly bound up in that. On the other hand, people have done brilliant things about subverting that from within. So lots of contemporary writers have to deal with the fact that mm-hmm. the old weird as they call it, is racist. And the new weird is all about trying to steal that back from Lovecraft and give it a more progressive or a less racist tinge. So there's a lot going on in Lovecraft that's really crucial. Well, I mean, first of all, horror at Red Hook, um, Victor Laval, the African-American author, wrote a story called The Ballad of Black Tom. It's a novella, and it is the most brilliant subversion and inversion of the horror at red hook i don't know whether you've read it or not but it is absolutely fabulous. yeah i know it well i know yeah. it well yeah yeah it's great uh, i'm actually getting victor on the show next year hopefully so we can talk about that then fantastic um right for a start i i have my own personal complex things with Lovecraft because i don't but you know that you know the old ancient alien theory that aliens can build the pyramids mm. and all that like obviously Sadly, it's not true. And it is in itself a racist theory because it's basically saying, you know, these people couldn't have done this. Of course they couldn't. It had to be someone else. But I have like, um, just from a pure storytelling standpoint, I get a bit of a thrill from the idea that like there were things before us that did all this stuff and that you can find the trace memories Mm of their architecture and their culture. I I love that idea, you know, I really do. Mm -hmm. And, And Lovecraft brings that to life in the most sublime imaginative way it fires my imagination those ideas he just can't write and (laughs) and i often think the thing about you know like it's indescribable yeah well someone else probably could hp it's howard you know it's just that you're put put some effort in so I, i love the ideas don't often like the delivery but the bigger problem and and you kind of touched on it when you said that you know these tentacular horrors are so clearly driven by a real pathological fear of the racial other he's basically swapping tentacles for black skin or you know or african features essentially is what he's doing in the most crass Mm. crude terms and what is quite a difficult thing to get your head around as a contemporary progressive reader is that you're reading stories about horrifying things that even when taken and recontextualized are unavoidably just symbols for racial otherness it's a really difficult tightrope to walk yeah uh, yeah i mean it is um i mean lots of things to say to that and one of the things that i try and persuade my um my students never never really succeed but i try and persuade them that bad writing is kind of core to his success you know failure is is at the core of his success so you know you can you can read out the description say of thulu at the end of the call, the call of Thulu, and it is objectively bad writing. You know, it's what you should give to creative writers and say, "Do not do this." Um, you know, this endless pile-up of, of adjectives, um, this overuse of you know, slobberingly or eldritch, and you know, yeah. all of these kind of really reaching kind of you know, just keep it simple, keep it plain. Um, you know, don't don't tell constantly what what term you can't describe it's ridiculous um so but i think there's something about the brokenness of his language the the kind of inadequacy of it that somehow allows the sublime to kind of break through you know um 
China Mieville, who's a new weird writer, uh, talks about um, the busted allegory of, of um, Lovecraft, which I think is a lovely way of doing it. You know, it's kind of broken sublime. It doesn't quite work. It always collapses into the ridiculous. You know, the best insult uh, to uh, Lovecraft's work was this famous review by Edmund Wilson, who kind of said, you know, the thing is, if you read 80 pages of build-up, what you don't need to do on the last page is reveal a terrifying, invisible, whistling penguin. Uh, and that's, sort of, uh, you know, because it just the whole thing collapsed. And of course, he always goes there. But I think that's the that that's the kind of comedy of it, and the, and the, and the brilliance of it, and the sublimeness of it is that the ridiculous and sublime kind of in his work goes together. So I think there's a lot to say about that. The other thing is that um, that I I think that any gothic um, icon, vampire, zombie, uh, mummy, tentacle, um, would only work for us if it means multiple things and multiple things at different times or multiple things at the same time so you can say the same about you know stoker's book is um a, a panic about you know racial immigration clearly but we don't necessarily think bram stoker is you know an, an unforgivable racist who's not um we're not able to work with because we can seize the vampire back from him and and spin it in different kinds of ways and actually say, well, your text reveals something quite interesting about sexuality that even you don't know or haven't acknowledged. And you can do exactly the same with the iconography uh, that you see in Lovecraft stories. So, you know, the t why the tentacle? Why squidginess? Why all of this stuff rising from the sea? It's because it's our image of the absolute other. You know, the octopus we do not understand some of the most basic things about, you know, re reproduction, um, whether they are communicating or not, why do they have three penises, what's the third one for, um, you know, are they communicating in squid ink? We don't know. We simply don't know. And it's the closest we've got to otherness on the planet. Now, you can be pathological and racist about that if you want, but you can also be incredibly uh, progressive and just say that's fantastic i'm embracing that mm -hmm. alterity that otherness um so in the work of o octavia butler say uh, another african-american writer she says go forward and embrace the horror you know so so breed with your uh, tentacular aliens she wrote a book called fledgling about a vampire uh, human uh, grouping that are you know interacting in this very um uh, pleasurable kind of uh, exploratory way with their identities and their otherness. So there's a way of embracing that. And this is what China Mieville also does in his his stuff. And also Jeff Vandermeer, you know, if people are reading uh, Annihilation or looking at his recent uh, book, Hummingbird, you know, all of that stuff is, is about embracing alterity. So you can seize this back from Lovecraft. You're not fatally complicit with his racism, you can seize it back from him. And that's what many people are doing. Hi again, Roger. Um, this is where we'll pretend that we've been breaking for days in between these episodes when in fact, We've been taking 30 seconds and taking a breath. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been lying in a hammock for days. <laughs> yeah, for us, it's, for us, it's been one long uh, chat. But for the audience, here's the third episode of our, our tracks and trails through the history of horror and gothic. We, we left it last time, three minutes ago, with H.P. Lovecraft, who, who died in 1937. 
And after him, largely speaking, in retrospect, the, the US entered a seemingly fallow period for easily identifiable Gothic horror. And maybe the horrors of the Second World War and a decade of prosperity afterwards, it seems to exercise the US of its spectres. And the next big name that comes along is Shirley Jackson with The Haunting of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle and the notorious short story, The Lottery. And then we get in the 70s, well, the late 60s and the 70s, we get Ira Levin's Rosemary's Baby. We get William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. And then in 1972... Mm -hmm. Someone called Stephen King released a little-known novella called Carrie, and, and the rest is history. Now, I spent a year producing this show and talking all about contemporary Gothic, and rather than carrying on with this author-by-author, book-by-book history, I thought it would be more interesting to pick out some of the key topics that you use in your book, Gothic and Illustrated mm. History, because you approach the entire topic of Gothic and horror and the speculative and the macabre from totally different angles than I've ever really seen considered before. And if we look at some of those, we can perhaps use them as as ways, as anchors sure. to pull out a lot of what we've talked about, pull it together and throw in some reference to contemporary text that people can read. Does that does that work for you? Yeah, sounds great. Great. Yeah. So first of all, I enjoyed the way that you broke down the the landscape of horror. And I'm going to talk about horror now rather than the gothics. I think it's it's kind of filtrated and widened into that by this point. Um, you break it down into city, country, and wilderness. How do they provoke different forms of terror and horror? Yeah, so um, I had this impossible task, you know, to to try and do all of the Gothic uh, all together, all of it um, globally in 52,000 words. So I thought what I would do was try and give several... Um, pathways or trajectories outwards um, from you know a starting point so you might start with um, the castle of Otranto but actually take some of its images and tropes and kind of you know move ever wide wider and but also see how it's coming back and keeps cycling back to the same sort of set of of, of themes and elements so with um i, I did a whole kind of series of, ch- of of short essays all of the chapters are really just short bite-sized essays that you can read in any order but in the lie of the land i've called it what i wanted to do was go from the small out to uh, out to the larger so you know start with the village and the country side and what that kind of means uh, and then move how the gothic moves from isolated places um, you know single houses in 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 the wilderness um, rotting mansions castles and so on how it moves outwards uh, so it encompasses uh, elements of the forest or of you know even larger tracts of land like the wilderness uh, but then also more more latterly the city itself so it does update it becomes increasingly about the familiar spaces not these weird other spaces but actually the spaces that we live in if you think about the trajectory of of dracula the count he comes from the very edges of europe so transylvania he moves steadily forwards into uh, europe and then arrives in uh, the wild north Whitby. Uh, and then, you know, it, the most terrifying thing about him being in London is that he he has a house in Piccadilly, Piccadilly, which is 
the closest you can get to Buckingham Palace. In other words, he's got to the centre of empire. He's got to the centre of the city. So I wanted to kind of do that kind of trajectory and then also pause and just think, um, actually, there's some quite a lot of horror about edge lands, about kind of these these scruffy spaces in between the country and the city that we all kind of occupy, you know, suburbs and um, these strange sort of places that seem somehow anonymous and have their own horrors to them. Uh, the kind of places where, say, Ben Wheatley's kill list takes place, you know, um, in car parks, in uh, chain hotels, in, you know, all of these sorts of anonymous lockups. And then it only in the end gets towards a conventional Gothic territory of the isolated mansion at the end. So th that that's the kind of trajectory that I was looking for. And then you can string lots of examples along that. And hopefully the reader can also go, oh, yeah, and this and this and this. Uh, so I wasn't it wasn't possible to name anything, everything, of course. Um, but it it's like a grid that makes allows you to think, oh, yeah, I can see where my favorite gothic story or horror story or horror film, where it fits. Well, I found it really fascinating, particularly because I'd never heard of the phrase edgelands before. Um, mm. And I'd certainly never considered them an actual definitive place that you could sort of, you know, prescribe the edges of. Um, by definition, they are they're kind of the interstitial places between the yeah. the places we normally call places, to use a really inarticulate yeah. sentence. Um, but the weird thing is, most of us live there. That's the backdrop to most of our lives. Right. You know, and, yeah, and that's when, right. And, and suburban horror for me, whether it's American, um, British or elsewhere, is the scariest for me because it's that it's that interruption of the abnormal into the extremely normal that I find that mm. is soft and so frightening. And the example that comes to mind, the two that come straight to mind for me would be the suburbs in the original Halloween when you see Michael yeah. wandering around um, and weirdly the um a lot of the scenes in the film it follows yes which feel very eerie because they're absolute mundanity yeah yeah that's right so i mean i think so so this is this seems to me something very new that happens in the late 19th century or starts to happen uh, you start getting horror stories that are set in um suburbs or or these new kind of places so Arthur Macken, the uh, English Welsh uh, borders writer, um, you know, talks about the horror in Halsden. I love that. It's kind of a suburb of London that, you know, yes, it is truly horrific. But he was kind of horrified by those. You get great stories by um, Stella Bowen, the, the, the writer, um, about um, suburbs and kind of, you know, horrifying um horrifying lives that are taking place in these new kind of uh, kit box house kind of um, uh, suburbs. Uh, and of course, that moves most explicitly to America. And in the post-war era, era, you do get this uh, very, very conscious decision to disperse cities. It was part of their nuclear strategy was to try and disperse populations into suburbs uh, and, and so that they, um, you know, were less concentrated in cities. Uh, and there's a kind of a horror underneath um, the so-called Levitt Town. Levitt Town was, was first built in um, Long Island and New York, uh, you know, 17,000 houses or whatever, built very, very quickly. And then everyone moves in and you have this cookie cutter life. Uh, and it's supposed to be the perfect emblem, uh, but actually becomes, you know, undercut with these 
uh, th- th- these kind of feelings of horror. And we know that, as you say, Ira Levin's, you know, Stepford Wives is a perfect example of that. There's something horrifying underneath that perfect suburb. And then it gets uh, a treatment um, with race politics in Jordan Peele's Get Out. You know, that's also set in a white privileged suburb. So there are lots of these kind of fictions that are about um, what one geographer, um, Catherine Short, calls edge lands, you know, these kind of interstitial spaces, in between spaces, neither country nor city, the suburb, the anonymous kind of place which has no history. So Gothic has changed because Gothic is about the terrible legacy of the deep past. But what scares us about suburbs is that they have no history at all. And that's almost even more terrifying, you know, blandness, uh, the absence of history. Uh, the vacuity of lives that have no connection, organic connection to the land. That seems to be what we most fear now. Yeah, one of the eeriest haunted houses I've ever encountered is in Anne River Siddons, the house next door. Um, Right. Because of that, because there is no reason. The house is a new build house and there is no reason for that ghost to be there. Or even if it is a ghost, it's quite ambiguous. Um, Yeah. And there is something frightening because there's nothing to exercise. You cannot rely mm-hmm. on the the architecture of the church or folkloric kind of um, ritual. There's nothing to engage with because without history, what is a haunting? Yeah. Uh, it almost yeah. becomes like a rogue cell in the body. You know, it becomes something you don't know how to counter. Um, and in terms of the suburbs being invaded by these various monsters it kind of makes me think of a bit of an ecosystem thing it's almost like you know how we when we incur further and further into nature and all of a sudden you've got a bear in your back garden or a, or a mountain lion mm. is kind of going through your bins it's kind of like that it's kind of like it's kind of like the the, mm. the horror is coming home it, it's incurring on our space that was is only recently our space um it's almost like a weird a, there's a weird colonizing metaphor in there a weird frontier metaphor that i haven't quite teased yeah. out but it's it's there yeah yeah i mean i think i think i, I do think that's a that that's a really good way of looking at it and in a way i think we've we've kind of moved on i suppose slightly in the sense that you know the the, the trope the tired trope uh of um you build a suburban house in america but it happens to be on a burial ground yeah. you know so so that kind of eruption uh, upwards of of this kind of uh, repressed past, and that kind of fits into the Gothic perfectly well. But as you say, there are these um, um, different kinds of hauntings which have no explanation. They're not they they can't give you a reason. You know, there's no origin for it. Follows. It's just mm. it's just something that you know kind of pursues you, uh, jumping from person to person without any sense of why, where it's where it's come from, where it's going. Uh, and that and that is also um you know the the purposeless haunting say in um david lowry's film a ghost story you know there's that again a kind of sense of there's no purpose to this there's no end point there's no closure no one is going to tell the story of this ghost and lay it to rest it's just going to persist in its meaninglessness and i think that's what's very modern very contemporary about some um, stories like this. I mean, one of my favourite recent novels is Hilary Mantel's um, Black Book. Um, is that what it's called? But is it Beyond Black? Double check that. Beyond Black. Beyond Black. Yeah. Thank you. I'm always about the I'm always medium. Confused. Yeah, which is about a medium who is 
kind of constantly hassled by actual ghosts, but they're really kind of banal and they 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 just kind of are, are annoying. And it, all of the settings are in um, M25 cafes uh, in really uh, run down um, civic centres and, you know, everything is very self-consciously uh, set in this kind of vacuous world of transition uh, in, and movement around the M25. So there's something really central, I think, about the kind of historylessness of those ghosts in, um, in that book, yeah. Yeah. And then when you're finished with carving up... Um kind of pockets of land in this book you then splinter the gothic into four cardinal directions of the compass you have <laughs> an essay on, on north south east and west and it, it's it's interesting because in some cases well actually in all cases those are the directions that a various strand of gothic came from such as the east for example with the east it the gothic arrived in the re by arrived i mean it kind of entered the public consciousness um in the racist notion of the yellow peril or the early roots of the vampire legend in eastern europe for example this thing has this thing has come from the east to terrify us yeah. or you know the original goths the tribe that sacked rome for which the entire thing is named they came from the north so there's a sense of these various parts of the globe these unmapped extremities as being a source of terror which is encroaching on us at the center of the world um and and disturbing us but then then the direction changes and each direction then becomes a place to which the gothic has spread as a mode of art it's kind of colonized much of the globe now it's obviously i'm not going to ask you to define a global gothic i mean jesus but I will ask. I will ask one thing. Early in your book, you refer to Gothic or horror at this point as being written in a quote register of crisis. Do yeah. you still think that applies to all the multifarious strands that now exist? Is it still a genre that is about crisis? Uh, yeah, I think it is. Um, but then perhaps um, that's my interpretative frame um, because I'm I'm also a kind of cultural historian. So I'm always interested in asking, you know, what is it that this text is is responding to? What is it signaling about the kind of place that it arises from? I mean, to to kind of think about it in global terms, and it really has covered the kind of globe. Um, you know, for example, you can ask questions like, why South Korea? Why does South Korea produce such extraordinary kind of work uh, in the film, uh, particularly in the kind of gothic register, haunted, haunted and, and nasty kind of uh, stories? Initially, uh, in the West, in, in, in the UK, all of this stuff was packaged as so-called Asia Extreme. Mm -hmm. You might remember that, some of you. Uh, you know, so Japanese stuff, Korean stuff, um, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, you know, all of that stuff was, was kind of thrown together as this kind of exoticized place where uh, these kind of really extreme horrors came for. But actually, they're all really distinct kind of cultures and they all have really distinct things to, to, to be anxious about. And, you know, Korea, South Korea, particularly that peninsula that locked in that kind of weird Cold War divide between North and South, um, that sense of a modern um, civilization in in Seoul, westernized um, 
propped up by um, Western powers during the Cold War and so on. It seems to be nevertheless kind of uh, teeming with particular kind of social anxieties. And you can say the same about Japan. Japan is very distinct, you know, sort of an ageing population, a fear about, you know, kind of decline uh, of power, uh, a generational kind of divide, lots of really nasty, vengeful children in Japanese uh, horror films, The Grudge, for example. Um, You know, those sorts of things feel very specific. And uh, you know the particular kind of post-war trajectory of Japan from one of shame at losing the Second World War and having to be occupied by foreign power, um, at the use of the the atom bomb on that population. Uh, all of the, we know all of this about Godzilla too. You know, Godzilla is the kind of emblem of of that um, whole era. So you can begin to get very specific about different cultures who have different kind of categories of crisis, if you like. So you can have very old Gothic, Gothic that is, um, you know, about uh, ancient and dying civilizations. Uh, certainly, British uh, Gothic has quite a lot of that. But I think particularly now, American Gothic, American Gothic registers the end of America as the leading world power. It, the power is clearly shifting and is is manifestly shifting in the last few years uh, to China. Uh, and you know the, the the huge kind of market of of culture coming or needing to speak to China is really marked. So I think you get lots of um, uh, of really interesting films from America recently, which is about precisely that kind of crisis. I think. Okay. Well, I mean, I yeah, I agree with you. I think all Gothic is born from anxiety. That's the only way I would probably change the word anxiety for crisis. But I I wholeheartedly mm. agree with you. Um, I mean, talked about, you know, Asia Extreme, Jesus. I, I recently had a conversation on the main show with an, a writer called Cassandra Kaur, Um and yeah. they are Malaysian um, by birth, but, but now live in mm-hmm. Canada. Uh, and I was talking about their novel, it's a novella called, let me get this right, Nothing But Blackened Teeth, which is all about okay. the yokai and the urai. And we got into a conversation about exactly what you said, that these cultures are not a monolith that they're all, all they're treated yeah. you know everyone in the west is like oh it's asian horror but they are completely different things um and it, on, on a side it sent me back to re-watch audition and tale of two sisters <laughs> which are two of the scariest ones i've ever seen in my life um but yeah i agree with you i, I agree with you totally tale of two yeah. sisters particularly is something there's something very 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 upsetting and unnerving about that film still but it's a really global gothic story that because it is it has a amazingly um asiatic korean sensibility but for me there's also something of the kind of germanic fairy tale about it with the house and the stepmother and the two little girls you know it's it's a blending of two very distinct forms of horror story yeah that's really important that's why we need this kind of concept of say the transnational gothic yeah so it's the, it, it can travel uh, it can move across but the tropes you know, broadly, say the haunted house or the ghost might stay the same, but they mean something. They fuse with local traditions. Um, so, you know, Japan, the hungry ghost and the, you know, the ancestor who is not appeased, all that sort of stuff uh, really locks into a local set of beliefs and superstitions that it, you don't necessarily have to understand in full, but are really helpful to understand in full. Um, so that you get that kind of sense of, um, OK, so they've moved it here, um, but... 
uh, it's meaning something profoundly. It's connected into a sort of set of superstitions that are very local. Um, and that's why you need this kind of understanding of the transnational, both global, but also very, very local at the same time. Well, the one part of your book, the one the one argument in it that I kind of wanted to, to pick you up on, just because I, either I... I don't know whether I don't agree or don't understand, so you can enlighten me. But, but <laughs> oh in, in this book, you you mention how exactly that that Gothic mixes and mingles with localized folklore. Um, so examples mm. would be the yokai or yuri from Japan, or the um, native myth of the Wendigo from the Algonquin Nation mm. in you know in Northeast cool. America. Um, the these localized traditions that are then taken into the gothic and but what i wondered is when we talk about these things being part of the gothic as you do are we not actually just imposing a western framework over over tradition that is entirely its own thing what right do we have to call it gothic yeah very good very good question and i think it's um it, it, what i'm interested in i think are those um, works that come from places that are manifestly, in a sense, engaging with a Gothic tradition. So, in a way, it's a response to. Uh, it used to be that globalization in the 1990s. If you talked about global global um, globalization and culture, it was always about Americanization. So it meant, you know, oh, the McDonald's appear everywhere. Everything is homogenized. Everything looks the same. And that kind of that is a sort of sense of appropriation. You know, you must impose uh, this cultural kind of register on the local stuff. So famously, you know, Gojira, uh, the Japanese film, is turned into and refilmed and reframed as Godzilla, the king of the monsters, when it's released in America with extra footage, with the white kind of, you know, guiding figure to control the, the, the meanings of this. Um, so, you know, that in that case, that's clearly appropriation. But I think something new and different is happening, which means that the direction is not one way anymore. Uh, and that you get lots and lots of kind of local traditions that are picking up on Gothic potential, uh, but actually transforming them into something much more kind of local. So it's like a it's like a hybrid negotiation rather than something that's imposing something um, or, on people. So, yeah, I mean, the Wendigo is a good example. I mean, the Wendigo is a kind of, you know, uh, an anglicization of a particular uh, kind of set of uh, words and concepts. Um, and it is... Um, forced into a certain kind of folkloric um, tradition, which is very, very familiar from the West. But we also have lots and lots of people who argue with how that's been done uh, and also offer alternatives and also much more authentic to the native kind of um, traditions and beliefs of that kind of figure. And, you know, discussion about whether Wendigo psychosis really does exist amongst um, Native American populations or not, um, those sorts of debates. So it feels to me like there's quite a multi-directional thing um, going on here. And you even have texts that are really explicitly transnational. So thinking about that film um, Atlantique um, by by Diop, mm -hmm. uh, who, uh, which is all about, you know, it, it's set... Well, it's, it's about migrants, about refugees um, who are leaving on a boat to try and get to Europe and, and all drown, but kind of come back. Um, and it's as if they've taken that European kind of ghost story, but actually setting it instead 
in a you know local African context um, does something to that story and really kind of transforms it. Um, so you know we we are trying to kind of refigure what the Gothic might be. This is part of a dis- set of discussions actually that I've had with um, some of my colleagues, and we've just been commissioned to um, do a really big book of three hundred and fifty thousand words uh, called a, a Global Gothic: A Handbook. And we reckon we need at least 70 contributors to help us get around the world and look at very, very specific local details. And uh, we're kind of fishing around now for um, proper contributors who are coming from those kind of regions, because that's the only way you can do it now. One person can't hold all this in their head Mm -hmm. or understand all of this. You know, you can have your local understandings, perhaps a little bit of what happens in Japan or in Korea or in um, Argentina or uh, in Aboriginal culture in Australia or in, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But actually you need experts on the ground to tell you about what's happening in those cultures and how they use and reappropriate the Gothic and turn it into something else. Well, that sounds fabulous. I'd be happy to help with that, by the way, because I know I know a lot of people <laughs> now around the world who, who uh, would be... Yeah, well, you know, we might come back to you on that because, yeah, um, yeah we, we, we've got a long kind of lead time because it's such a daunting thing. Uh, but we just realised very quickly we were going to need a massive team to, yeah. to do that because sounds fabulous. That's though. all you need now. Indeed, yeah, sounds yeah. great. Um, right, last question then, quite an appropriate one, uh, considering you just said that. So we've talked about the Gothic being everything and nothing and all things to all men, and you know, mm-hmm. etc. Where's it going next, Roger? Like whatever, fre- <laughs> what what fresh monstrosity? What what rough beast is slouching towards Bethlehem to be born? What what is the future for Gothic horror? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that that is a really good question, and um, it's also you know, if if I had an answer, it would possibly be a sign of uh, terminal decline, because um, you know, genres that are alive continually mutate and adapt and transform in ways that we just cannot predict or see. Um, and when you get new um, forms of media, so, you know, like the arrival of the internet and uh, that pushes things like uh, the Blair Witch Project, or you get the arrival of streaming TV and suddenly, you know, a film director like Mike Flanagan finds that you can do different things in serial form over many more hours, you know, suddenly um, the Gothic is changing and, and altering in different directions. And then, you know, even now people arguing about um, the squid game and it's, um, you know, it's it, is it full of racial stereotypes or is it trying to kind of, you know, ad- adopt a different mode of these things? So in other words, you can't, I think, hopefully, no expert can tell you where it's going to go next because there's something bubbling here which you cannot anticipate. Uh, it might arise from uh, very, you know, local um, cultures, just like, say, Night of the Living Dead did in 1968, completely outside the film system, the studio system, totally unforeseeable, the, the effect of that. Or even the Evil Dead, you know, the way that Sam Raimi and his group of friends put that together. It's unpredictable. It, you can't kind of quite see where it's coming from. And there's also loads of, you know, optimism, I think, about publishing platforms on the internet because, you know, it's so much cheaper. You can get lots of reissues done quite cheaply, but also platforms for new writers, platforms that that writers themselves can set up and suddenly you're hearing a host of different kind of voices so my sense would be that um whatever is the next big thing is precisely the thing that a professor of gothic can't see ahead and (laughs) shouldn't be able to 
Well, yeah, I mean, what a perfect answer. I I just find it reassuring <laughs> that in, in decades to come, when we've been through the water wars and, you know, we're on mm-hmm. we're on COVID, like, variation, whatever, something that sounds like the name yeah. of Elon Musk kid, and we're all sitting in our bunkers, someone somewhere will still be writing a story about whatever frightened them. Yeah. And I think absolutely. at the end of the day, people say, what is Gothic? It, it seems to me to be something that is at the very core of what it means to be a human being, really, and need to look into the abyss and write a story about it in whatever form that story yeah. may take. So, yeah. Well, I mean, we've managed to cram the best part of 300 years into a few hours there. Um, we went from Otranto to Squid Game, which is quite the quite the move um, that's not bad that's all right isn't it all that's left for me to say is um the book is great if you like what we talked about here today the book will blow your mind um thank you roger for so much for joining me today and and making me sound like i can at least remember at least a bit of what i pretend to know about every week roger luckhurst thank you very much for talking scared yeah definitely it's always lovely talking to fellow experts of which you undoubtedly are so um it's been a great chat thanks very much Okay, the quickest of outros this week, because you've already endured far too much of my voice for one week, especially at this time of year when sensory overload is so close. But I really hope you enjoyed that trip through this genre that we all love. I hope you learned something new, perhaps, or found a reason to read a book that you've avoided previously, or at least I hope it forms a good framework for other conversations that we've had and yet to be had on this podcast. I just hope you liked it because, well, I like when you like things. I really would recommend picking up Roger's book, Gothic and Illustrated History. It's the best kind of academic introduction. It's readable, massively engaging, without being either too dry or too condescending. It it covers both the bases and some topics that I'd never thought of or, or even heard of in some cases. That the concept of edgelands is a new one on me. Plus, the images are incredible and I'm going to post some on Twitter when this goes live. So yeah, it's worth picking up if you're interested in the mechanics and the history of horror. It'd make a great Christmas present. If you want to talk about it, any of it, or ask any questions or or even better, offer any corrections because I'm sure there are some to be made, you can reach me in the usual places. Talk Scared Pod on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, where I continue to plug away to build an audience without ever dancing. <laughs> or you can email me a proper email to talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. I'd be happy to discuss any of this stuff, because, well, it's my lifeblood. Also, if you did like what you heard and perhaps want more, you can become a subscriber yourself at patreon.com talkingscaredpod. The links in the show notes. There's a, a whole backlog of bonus conversations plus new stuff all the time, and all support is massively appreciated. I'm back as ever next week. What a break this is turning out to be. I'm joined by Josh Malaman and Rachel Harrison for something a little different, even more different. You'll see. I'm I'm a bit nervous about that one, to be honest. <laughs> but until then. Keep warm, eat well, 
and buy books by a storyteller, not some ghost-written celebrity. Yeah, read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.